Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome to New Books and in Intellectual History. I'm your host today, Carl Nellis, and we are talking with John Reeder, professor of English at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, about his new book, Science Fiction and the Mass Cultural Genre System. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carl. I'm so delighted to have you on. I love your work, and I followed it for a while, and I particularly am delighted to have this book in hand. I love your approach to, to science fiction in particular, because I'm a fan and I also study science fiction but also to the way that you look at how genre works, what it is, and particularly its, its social and historical makeup. I'm really excited to share your work with listeners. Let's get started by talking a little bit about what brought you to the perspective that you have. What's your background? Um, how did you come to study genre in this way and to study science fiction the way that you do? Well, thanks. Um, yeah, the, this project really came directly out of the previous book I wrote, uh, that book was titled Colonialism and the Emergence of Science Fiction. And in the first chapter of that book, I found myself having to address the question, what is science fiction? You know, what do I mean by that term? Right. And, right. you know, I, I realized that people are constantly addressing that question. What is, you know, science fiction? There's a lot of disagreement about it. There's, uh, you know, a myriad definitions which are very very different from one another and I started thinking about the problem seriously and what I um, noticed about the argument and about similar arguments about other genres was that it seemed like there was a missing question that Mm. people would say what is science fiction or what is a a tragedy what is a a novel but uh, I, I felt like the question that needed to be asked was, what is a genre? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I started thinking from that question, you know, what is a genre? What do I mean by a genre? What does a genre do? And I started finding that, you know, I was not the first person to think this or to ask these questions. And <laughs> right. started right. finding some very good work that had been done on it. But that really launched me into 
directing the question at science fiction, which I don't think anyone really had done. Uh, a lot of people had, you know, entered into this argument, what is science fiction? But um, there hadn't been much discussion about what is a genre <laughs> and how is science fiction a genre? How does it fit into our entire sense of genre? So this question of genre had been addressed in film theory and television right, studies right. primarily uh, in really interesting ways. And I, I basically took that work and moved it over into thinking about uh, the history of science fiction and how it came to be considered a kind of autonomous, separate kind of, of uh, narrative. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to the study of literature in the first place? You started with mm. English Romanticism, didn't you? Yes, right. Well, I got my PhD in 1980, <laughs> quite a while ago. <laughs> uh, and back then, uh, <clears throat> as a graduate student at uh, Yale University, one could not write about authors who were alive. <laughs> they right, pretty much right. had to be dead. So I wrote my dissertation on uh, the poetry of Percy Bysshe Shelley, who's the husband of Mary Shelley, who wrote uh, Frankenstein, mm -hmm. um, which is was kind of important to me because uh, uh, it was kind of through Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that I got to Percy Bysshe Shelley's uh, poetic works. Uh, but I've been interested in literature pretty much my whole life. I don't know how I got to it, but. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've always been someone who reads a lot for pleasure. As a kid, as a as a teenager, I was an English major as an undergraduate. So mm -hmm. going into graduate school, uh, studying, getting a PhD in English was kind of a, you know, a natural progression for me from my, I guess you, you could say my passions <laughs> as, a, right. as, a, as a kid. And I stuck with English Romanticism for quite a while. For about 20 years after I got my PhD, my first 20 years as a professor at UH Manoa, <clears throat> that was where I was publishing. But all along the way, I was also doing other work. I think the second essay I ever published, the first one was on Shelley's poetry, but the second one, which was published like within months after the first one, was on science fiction hmm. and was uh, published in Science Fiction Studies. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, I kept writing about science fiction and contemporary horror movies and some other similar things alongside the work that I was doing in English Romanticism. And then about 2000, year 2000, I took my third sabbatical of my career and I looked at some kind of half-finished work that I had on uh, British Romantic poetry and I said to myself, I really don't feel like finishing this work. <laughs> I would rather I would rather devote my my time to to writing about science fiction. That's really what I you know what I've really always liked best and wanted to read for pleasure. And the, the faculty at Yale is not telling me what to do anymore. So right. uh, I, I made that change, and it was actually uh, the best change, best career decision I ever made. I think hmm. to uh, start working on science fiction. I found that there was a lot of interesting work that had been done, but a lot of interesting work that needed to be done. I, you know, I found it a much more open field. It was more rewarding work. Um, I mean, when you're writing about a uh, William Wordsworth or Percy Shelley, you're like the 50th or the 500th person 
you know, to try to say something about this poem. <laughs> right, right. And there was really work that needed to be done, I thought, in science fiction. There was some really important early work that had kind of laid the foundations for the kind of work that I was able to do. There was these um, tremendous bibliographers that had mm. worked in the later 20th century, going back and you know, compiling these uh, very, very important usable bibliographies of uh, science fiction back into the mid-19th century. And of course, there was uh, some really um, important and influential uh, figures in uh, critical work, like um, Frederick Jameson and Darko mm-hmm. Suvin and you know, others who had really opened up the field and kind of made it a, a legitimate academic pursuit. So um, I felt like I had something to contribute largely because of my living in Hawaii and because of my interaction with my students over you know the, the course of my career in teaching. I felt like there was a big kind of blind spot in a lot of science fiction criticism or li- history. Really, I'm, I consider myself basically a literary historian. Right. Um, right. There was kind of a blind spot about colonialism. So it seemed to me that it was all over the genre. It, it was just dripping with it. But yet, and mm. people would acknowledge it and then just kind of pass on as if it was not important or didn't need any comment. So that really motivated my first book. And in the course of writing that book, I got interested in these uh, questions of genre and genre theory and the, you know, the whole question of the relationship between what's called genre fiction and the kind of fiction that is called literature and gets taught in uh, college courses. And that issue is, is really where you start in the introduction of this book, because you're setting out um, why talk about science fiction in relation to this concept of the mass cultural genre system. Mm-hmm. And so you spend some time talking about the traditional or the academic, the classical genre system and the mass cultural genre system. And even you've already mentioned uh, Suvin and some of the other scholars whose work you you point to in that introduction who, as you say, legitimized the, the uh, academic study of science fiction. Can you talk a little bit more about what you're doing there when you're introducing the mass cultural genre system in particular and the way that it's important to understand uh, literary production and science fiction distribution in particular in relation to technologies of publication, the distribution of literacy, and the distribution of texts? Mm-hmm. Three of the big concepts that you set out in the introduction as uh, being important to understand what's going on with science fiction. Can you talk a little bit about those three and how they launch your argument? Okay. Um, actually, your question al- already explains a lot. <laughs> got a lot. <laughs> got a lot in there. The idea of the mass cultural genre system comes, first of all, just from the notion, the fairly simple notion, I think, that any generic designation is part of a system of designations. It doesn't stand by itself. It stands in relationship to other categories. That's drawn directly from linguistics, right, where a word means what it means in a language in relationship to the other words in the language and not in some other way. So like the word sank is the past tense of sink in English, but in French it means five, right? Right. So I felt like the, you know, genres, and I don't think this was a controversial idea at all, That genres work the same way, but because of that, when you're saying this is X or Y genre, you have to always be thinking about all the other genre designations that sit in relationship to it. And what I 
noticed very much in the science fiction literary history and criticism that was around, uh, say, <clears throat> at the beginning of the century in 2000, was that there was a kind of a loose jockeying back and forth between using terms like satire and, you know, tragedy and comedy and using terms like science fiction and detective fiction as if they were part of the same language. But <clears throat> I think generically, when you look at it closely, they're part of two different languages that can talk about the same material. The example I give in the book is Sophocles' Oedipus the King, which, of course, is the great tragedy, uh, according to Aristotle and Aristotle's poetics, mm. but has also been written about as a piece of de detective fiction by some very prominent critics like Ernst Bloch and Peter Brooks. And what I point out in the, uh, in the introduction is that you can easily make the case that it's a piece of detective fiction, but all the evidence that you take into account in order to show that it's a piece of detective fiction has no bearing on the fact that it's a tragedy. Mm. And what makes it a tragedy and what makes it a piece of detective fiction are two completely different sets of characteristics in the, in the play. Whether you call it a tragedy or whether you call it a piece of detective fiction depends on whether you're differentiating it from comedy and epic on the mm -hmm. one hand, or differentiating it from comedy and um, science fiction or horror on the other hand, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to elaborate those two systems, first of all, just to, in this kind of theoretical perspective of you know, paying attention to the relationship of the individual designation to the systematic context. Now, mass culture uh, comes into it because, you know, this term science fiction is not very old and only came into popular use around 1930, around the same time as a whole cluster of other uh, terms, uh, detective fiction, uh, the Western spy fiction, uh, the modern sense of romance as a love story, uh, a number of others. And these, all these um, generic terms uh, come, into, come into visibility and into widespread use in the course of about three or four decades, starting in the 1890s and going into the 1930s, right. because of changes in publishing. And in the, the main vehicle for this set of genre designations is a certain kind of fiction magazine, <clears throat> which immediately had influence on early filmmaking. So it, these generic designations moved over into film very quickly. What I'm arguing in the introduction there is that there's a whole different set of terms there that comprises a, a, a new system that's coming into into shape in those decades. And then you have to ask why. Why is it coming into shape in those decades? Why mm -hmm. wasn't it around before? I mean, there's always an impulse in some historians to say, well, science fiction has been around since, you know, the Bible or since um, uh, Gilgamesh or, you know, since Sir Thomas More's Utopia or some, you know, uh, these very old texts that clearly have characteristics that you could align with modern science fiction. But my question was not, you know, why did not why did a certain set of ideas about like traveling outside the world start to have stories told about them or start to be the core of stories, which uh, was not the case, but rather why this whole cluster of generic designations came into uh, use at around the same time. 
I think the answer, of course, is that it has to do with mass cultural distribution of print. It has to do with a certain kind of magazine uh, and a certain kind of business model for the magazine. Mm-hmm. That business model is based on there were earlier magazines they go back a couple centuries before the 1890s periodical magazines that uh, there were earlier magazines that published a lot of fiction for instance Hmm. Um, but they didn't generate this set of terms until the 1890s why did that happen then Uh, right what happened at that point was that a certain um, business model came into widespread use in uh, publishing where instead of depending on selling the magazine, making your money by selling the magazine, the publishers started uh, selling the magazine at much less than what it cost to produce the magazine physically. And they made their money by selling advertisements. The prominence of the ads, I argue, is what changed everything about these, uh, the way these magazines worked. Because um, they were dependent on advertising, their primary goal became to uh, the primary goal of the rest of the material in the uh, magazine became, first of all, to attract readers who would habitually buy the magazine over and over in order to read the course of doing so, read the ads. But it was this matter of forming uh, habitual uh, consumption that Mm -hmm. was at the core of it. And this notion of or this goal of habitual consumption then very quickly kind of transposed itself into a kind of magazine that didn't necessarily depend on advertising, like the early science fiction or the early detective fiction magazines. They had a little bit of advertising, but it was very low finance stuff. They didn't get much money out of their ads. They made their money by selling the fiction, but the fiction itself was um, of a sort that promoted habitual consumption. Um, the idea was you're going to get a certain kind of story here, a certain kind of story that you can rely on getting, a certain kind of story that you know will fulfill your expectations. And that, first of all, you know the. The first kind of magazines uh, that sold that were all fiction magazines that mixed together a whole bunch of different genres. But in the course of things, it wasn't very long before the magazines started becoming very specialized. They, mm-hmm. they sold all one kind of genre and all, all another kind of genre. And as these magazines proliferated, then uh, it became um, – useful and necessary for the publishers in particular to be able to identify brand their fiction. So there's a kind of a slow process of uh, separation between generic terms and brand terms and author Mm -hmm. designations. You know, one of the first things that gets uh, identified with uh, reliable Uh, consumption as author names like uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs or Arthur Conan Doyle or Zane Gray. But how do you sell a Zane Gray-like story? (laughs) How do you sell a Edgar Burroughs-like story? You can't put that on the the cover. So these these terms, Western, detective fiction, science fiction, there's a very good reason um, in the finances of the publishing industry or in the commercial interests of the publishing industry for uh, making them 
the same time, you had some magazines like Weird Tales, which basically published this close to the same kind of fiction as uh, Amazing Stories, which is usually identified as the first science fiction magazine. But they never identified it as science fiction. They identified it as weird, right? which was the brand name, right? And everything in it was weird. It was a weird detective story, <laughs> yeah. a weird surgery yeah. story, or, you know, a weird science story. But again, you know, that wouldn't be very useful for other publishers. So yep. uh, the term science fiction detached itself early on from any one magazine and became this uh, generic term, just as detective fiction, uh, spy fiction, romance, all these uh, Western, all these other terms uh, gradually. Mm -hmm. What they do is when Robert Altman in his book on uh, film genres talks about the progress from adjective to noun. <laughs> Of Western. Right. You know, first, there were Western films, Western plots, Western heroes, and then it became the Western. Right. And I, I think that that's um, that same kind of process happened uh, repeatedly in the uh, mass cultural publishing industry and for the same reasons. Before we leave it too far behind, you talk about advertisements in a really interesting way. There are two pieces of it that I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about. You talk about the advertisement as the keystone genre mm -hmm. of the mass cultural genre system. And you go into what you call the utopianism of the advertisement. Right. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about both of those? How is the advertisement the keystone genre of the mass cultural genre system? And how do we come to understand advertisements as utopian? Okay. Great questions. Advertising is the keystone of the of the genre system. It has to do with that business model that I was just talking about. That mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I think it is the ad that is the constant presence in mass cultural uh, media, and all of the other genres shift around it. We have become so used to this that we don't notice it. Maybe, but whether you're watching a news broadcast or a, a game show or a uh, talk show or a cop show, you know, it's interspersed with ads, right? Every 10, 15, five minutes, there's this set of ads. And the ads uh, are the constant presence. They are the, uh, you know, kind of the glue of the, of the whole thing because the, uh, the financial structure of the entire broadcast or publication, whatever it may be, uh, depends on the ads, right? It's first yeah. of all the ads. And I argue that even when the ads are not present, as in, you know, say, um, modern cable television or cinema, uh, there's still a shaping presence, precisely in this case by their their absence, because the, the, the attraction of going to see something without commercial interruptions has to be uh, taken into account. Mm -hmm. One has to navigate around ads. I've noticed on Facebook in, in recent years, there are more and more ads, right? Facebook mm -hmm. started out without any ads, but it's a mass cultural publishing medium, publishing, you know, a different kind of genre than television or print had before. Right. But nonetheless, the revenues are generated by ads, and more and more you see that at the bottom of it, it's about connecting consumers with sellers, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the ads. So the, the 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 advertisement is like the keystone genre. I call it the keystone genre. Because it's the one that keeps everything else in place. It's, if you pull the ads out, I think everything else falls apart and you no longer have a coherent system. That said, it doesn't mean that all the other bricks look like that brick. <laughs> right. 
Right. So the ads are uh, really have a very different uh, uh, quality often than, than the others. And there's no formal reason why stories have to look like ads, but they do perform this essential function. Now, about the utopianism of the ads. When I say utopianism in relationship to the ads, I mean that advertisement uh, very often depends on promoting a certain kind of wish fulfillment fantasy to the, mm-hmm. the viewer, the consumer that associates fulfillment of some kind of a fantasy with consumption of the product. I think that's a fairly obvious thing about ads, right? Um, that the ad will picture a guy driving this car with a beautiful woman beside him and you know, the beautiful woman doesn't really have anything to do with the car, but uh, obviously the, the association that's being made is if you have the car, you know, you will have some kind of sexual fulfillment. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the, you know, the a uh, 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 prevalent, widely prevalent strategy in ads. And what it what it results in is the kind of um, a kind of a wish fulfillment world depicted in advertising where. Everything is nice and right and good and, you know, wholesome and everybody's happy and healthy and looks good. And <laughs> their hair is, you know, incredibly luxuriant and so on and so forth. It's been analyzed as glamour. And I, I work from that uh, category of glamour. You know, when you look at an ad that promotes a certain kind of uh, envy that you, you want to look like that, you want to have that, I I uh, work from that into the notion that there's a kind of a utopian world of perfect, perfected consumers, mm-hmm. right? That's uh, uh, implicit in the ads. And what it, uh, what I associate it with in mass culture more generally is a certain kind of endemic escapism, uh, otherworldliness. In the entertainment industry, the notion that entertainment seeps into everything, even the news. Right. So your news broadcasters have to chat and tell jokes with each other and have, you know, models, builds and faces rather than the news simply presented on its own merits. And that entertainment category kind of uh, promotes a a widespread endemic otherworldliness that can have a utopian quality and it can also have obviously a kind of an apologetic quality. Right. Yeah. So you really deal with that a lot in chapter two. Mm-hmm. The other piece of chapter one that I think is worth dealing with more when you're talking about what is a genre before we kind of move into really the examples and the case studies and some of the histories that you include uh, kind of in the second half of the book is the way that you respond to those attempts to define genre uh, with formal concerns. You know, what do you say to someone that really builds their understanding of genre, or their, the way that they look at a text and they say, I can determine whether this is in a particular genre based on its formal characteristics? The, the term that you use that really helps to reframe the discussion of what a genre is, is community of practice or a community of interpretation. Can you talk a little bit more about the way in which you approach genre saying what's really more helpful than trying to determine whether a text is the precursor text or, you know, based on its formal characteristics. What's more helpful is to understand the ways in which genres are extrinsic to texts and exist in communities of practice. Yeah. Um, so to start at the beginning of the question, um, I think that it, you can take a formal approach to genre. There's nothing logically incoherent about doing so. Right. Mm-hmm. And it has been done, obviously, with a lot of success by a 
somebody like Northrop Frye in the 20th century. What I argue is that it's more interesting <laughs> to ask the questions about the historical use of genres than it is to try to prepackage them or to push these questions of definition, okay, um, uh, in a formal sense. And I think when once you start uh, approaching genre as a historical category, that is a category of use hmm. rather than a category of form, a category of common use rather than a category of experts, then it leads you to this insight that uh, genres are established by communities of practice, by sets of people agreeing uh, on what a thing is, uh, on constructing these uh, categories and using them. That's the way language works. That's the way uh, everyday speech works, right? People understand within a given community what's praise, what's uh, sarcasm, what's a joke, what's not. Right. And entering into a community and being a competent member depends on understanding how to use those categories when when to address a person as sir and when to use their first name and things like that. OK. Right. So uh, genres are constituted by common usage that takes place within communities of practice and these Communities then can be uh, talked about as, you know, really specific historical realities. The, the notion of if you're going to talk about genre as a form, um, it's quite detachable from history. And it makes perfect sense to say Lucian of Samosoto was writing science fiction, even though neither he nor anyone else alive at the time would have thought so. Or, right? right. Because, you know, it's it's up to the expert. It's not up to them. But what I find a much more interesting and useful way of approaching genres to say, well, genres are active categories, right? It makes a difference what you call a, a genre to the people who use the category. And the questions mm -hmm. become, well, what kind of difference does it make to them? Why do they use it? If you're going to argue about, you know, what is science fiction? The question is, who cares? And why right. do they care? And obviously, people do care, <laughs> right? People care a lot at certain points about defending uh, certain genre boundaries, for instance. And then later on, mm -hmm. they turn out mm -hmm. not to care <laughs> at, a, at another point. And you have to ask, well, why did it matter at one point and not at another? Right. So this whole notion of communities of practice is my way of trying to, let's say, solidify this historical sense of, of genre as common usage. And mm -hmm. I think as I've thought about it more and more, even after finishing the book, this Emphasis on common usage rather than expert designation is really at the heart of my argument, I think. The other key concept that you really go into some detail about in the, in Chapter 1 on defining science fiction is the idea of a boundary object. Could you talk mm -hmm. a little bit more about the relationship between community of practice and, and boundary, boundary object? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, that's a term that I borrow from this really excellent book called Sorting, Sorting Things Out hmm. uh, by Booker and Starr. A really very good book, and it was very helpful for me. And it's the book where I, I borrowed the term community of practice from, although as, as I went on working, I found that it had been used prior to them and more widely. But they, their notion of a boundary object, uh, they were actually mostly working on medical practitioners, nurses and doctors and so forth, and how they define things and got to use and use them in relationship to one another and the way in which the actual categories 
that they used were often different from the categories that were um, like formally defined in books or in manuals or in so were spelled out in contracts or anything like that, and that that these categories were kind of negotiated among different sets of people who had to use the same objects for the same things for different reasons and you know come at them in different ways. So what Booker and Starr talk about is these is the formation of boundary objects, which are objects that several different communities of practice can all agree on. So they form a boundary between these different communities of practice who have different responsibilities, different motives, different levels of power. Uh, and so there are times when there are irresolvable conflicts between the, what one can do and what another can do. But there are negotiations among these communities on what they're going to agree things mean that, uh, you know, what is a sick person, <laughs> right, that is going to be a boundary object. And there's going to be certain terms that can be used that way. Probably the best example I found in uh, genre theory is the term literature and uh, the, the terms that literature generates in um, college curriculum. Right. So once you have uh, the term literature and you say that's what we're studying, not everybody has to agree on what literature is, but they all have to agree that they validate that term. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, the professors can say this is literature and this isn't literature and have their arguments about it. But the uh, people uh, in the registrar's office who are looking at transcripts can say, here's a course in literature. And we don't have, they don't have to worry about the arguments the professors are having. They just need that term. It's right. in literature. Right. It's not in sociology. It's not in uh, political science. It's not in history. It's in literature. So it fulfills these requirements. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a boundary object between those two different sets of users. You then have a chapter that you call The Genealogies of Science Fiction, mm -hmm. where you take up some of the competing claims. You've already mentioned Frankenstein and Shelley, and you've already talked some about the, the pulps. And in this chapter, you, you particularly talk about Gernsback and uh, Amazing Stories. Can you talk a little bit about how you move from Chapter 1, which really gets into uh, genre theory, Chapter 2, which explains the relationship between uh, genres and mass cultural systems, can you talk about how you then launch into discussing a historical view of science fiction in particular? Okay. So, yeah, the first chapter is just about the question of definition, right? And that's setting up the terms of the rest of the argument. The second chapter is using that notion of communities of practice and the uh, historical approach to genre and the emphasis on uh, the relation of individual genres to genre systems to elaborate a historical attempt, an attempt at a historical description of the mass cultural genre system, the system of different genres that came into place in the late 19th and early 20th century, and that has uh, been a very important part of cultural practice ever since. It's very important now. And I argue that it had certain kind of widespread properties, like the emphasis on serial serial repetition that we were talking about earlier on forming, con, you know, consumer habits uh, and the utopianism, the endemic otherworldliness. So there, there's a number of other things that I talked about there. The rest of the chapters are actually attempts to go at certain aspects of science fiction using the analysis in the first two chapters as a theoretical basis for kind of reframing the question and rethinking the answer. 
Mm-hmm. So the, the third one I asked this question of the genealogy of science fiction, which is one that comes up inevitably, of course, in any history, uh, and one that has generated quite a bit of argument around the question of definition as well. Because people say, oh, what's the first science fiction uh, story? Where did it start? Uh, some people say Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Some people say H.G. Uh, Wells' The Time Machine. Some people say it has to be Hugo Gernsback's magazine because that's where the term started to get used. So there's there's these various and other people say Lucian of Samosota or Gilgamesh. In the um, the third chapter, what I wanted to do was to go into a a very um, detailed, particularistic argument about how science fiction took shape in the mass cultural genre system and how it didn't. Okay, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. the, the argument centers around two. Uh, first part centers around one, second part centers around another uh, text that have often been proposed as the origin of science fiction. Right. Of course, I'm arguing that there isn't any origin. Uh, right. There's just this gradual accumulation. But the, so the whole first part is about Frankenstein, and it's very, it's a um, pretty detailed uh, attempt to describe the early reception of Frankenstein in generic terms, in terms of how it was understood generically and how it fit into the contemporary uh, systems of generic designation at the time of its publication, which was 1880-18 and then again in 1831. So there's a a large part of uh, the chapter that's all about that. And then there's a second part that's about how the generic identification of the story changed in relationship to changing systemic possibilities mm-hmm. at the end of the 19th century. A bunch of Frankenstein stories that appeared uh, in magazines in the 1880s, 1890s, and on into the early 1900s, and how the, um, the expectations surrounding those stories uh, and the uh, generic context in which they were recognized was very different from what the original uh, publication of Frankenstein had been. Uh, And then I do a third, very much briefer bit on how Frankenstein's uh, status changed again uh, in the uh, late 20th century when the novel became uh, a canonical text in higher education, uh, which it had not been up until then. Right. So, I mean, the argument throughout that whole chapter is that at every point, the, the story was understood in terms of contemporary systemic uh, possibilities. It innovated in relationship to them, but its innovation was understood very differently at different points. And that, let's say, the, the status of Frankenstein as a kind of an ur text, a kind of founding text of science fiction, is not established by Mary Shelley when she wrote it was established by the many, many, many people who adapted it, republished mm-hmm. it, relabeled it, thought about it, and wrote about it. So it's that, right. it's that whole history of reception that followed that establishes it as this authoritative text. And, and you can demonstrate that a great deal of that has little or nothing to do with its generic uh, or thematic power at the time of its publication. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of it has to do with the changing context and the way the story 
it's this chameleon. It's this, you know, incredible <laughs> plot that, you know, just keep, is endlessly useful and you know, people can keep, you know, re, re over and over again. And, and I talked some about reasons why I think that's so. I think it was, mm-hmm. even at the time of its publication, it was very multi-generic and it was pulling together, you know, Greek myth and biblical stories and Miltonic poetry and, um, the political uh, writing of her father, William Godwin, and the Ethiopian writing of her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and popular uh, romanticism of her uh, friend, Lord Byron. All these things were being pulled together, uh, and really, and, and it was incredibly quickly adapted to the stage and proved very fruitful material for melodrama. But, you know, Mary Shelley's novel has nothing to do with melodrama. And it's as melodrama that it became the basis for a lot of later film. Uh, It's it's that melodramatic stage adaptation that provides the basis for, you know, the Boris Karloff Frankenstein in 1931. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the argument uh, is that it's these communities of practice operating uh, in these, you know, systems of generic designation and changing the system by the way they are using different stories, uh, that's the, the the really graspable and important historical phenomenon. It's not the protean power of this originating text. Mm-hmm. It's its adaptability. It's its chameleon <laughs> character. It's its changeable nature that makes it useful to so many different people. That makes it an important part of the genre's history. Uh, and so, and the, the second half of the, the chapter was about the early magazines, and it, I, I tried there in a pretty detailed way to talk about various attempts to take commercial advantage of what seemed to be a, a viable niche genre, <laughs> niche market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finally, Hugo Gernsback figured out and, and and got right, and there were earlier attempts that failed or didn't work as well. And so I, I marched through that history uh, from, you know, it goes from about 1910 to about 1930, looking at how the kind of story that Gernsback successfully marketed as science fiction, identifiably there and being identified in many different ways, but not consistently or coherently enough to form a usable category until Gernsback succeeded with mm-hmm. this magazine. There's so much more interesting history that goes on here at the end of the book. You have a chapter on Philip K. Dick and his career and his position between uh, different communities of interpretation, particularly genre categories and uh, literary canons. And so how he moves and kind of becomes and creates uh, boundary objects for different communities there. You have a chapter on Hollywood films and awards and particularly um, the work and the presence of women in science fiction uh, and the influence of feminist thought. That's really, I think, a powerful chapter. I would love to hear you talk about the last chapter in the book where you discuss Afrofuturism and indigenous futurism when you're talking about communities of interpretation and practice engaging with and creating science fiction. And you do a really interesting thing in that chapter with three films. Maybe just in wrapping up, could you talk a little bit about, once you get to that point in the book, how those three films function and how you're able to use them in your argument? In the in the last chapter of the book, kind of the big picture that I'm trying to get at is ways that minority communities tap into the resources of the genre of science fiction and have been able to 
in interesting ways, first with Afrofuturism from the 1960s on, and more recently with indigenous futurism from the 1990s on. So the three films, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I, I, I write about the 1956 film, the first one, which is a typical version of 50s Hollywood science fiction, I think. <laughs> um, although I think it's really, it's one of the best. Uh, it's actually my favorite of uh, the 1950s science fiction mm. films, but it's typical in a lot of uh, ways. It, it's often read as an allegory of communism, communist invasion. That was, you know, it's, it's a Cold War film, and it was natural that people would see it that way. I read it mm. more as uh, being about uh, corporate uh, invasion of small town America. But the most important point is that there's a, a, an assumption of kind of universality that's attributed to the white middle class small town community uh, that frames everything else. You know, the threat of invasion is framed by that assumption that, you know, if people are left alone, they can all be like uh, Miles and Becky, the, the heterosexual, normal white you know, mm -hmm. people at the center of the film. And, you know, the science fictional quality of the film, both underwritten and undermined by that uh, assumption of universality. In other words, it enables it and it limits it at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it presumes a public that identifies themselves with the central characters in the film, right? Uh, and those characters are two white professionals, you know, heterosexual couple. So the other two films both uh, very pointedly use the plot of invasion uh, in ways that do not allow that kind of identification, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. That that identify what are explicitly minority communities. There's not an assumption of universality. There's not an assumption that everybody can watch this and make sense of it and and put themselves in the place of the central characters. Okay. Right. So the first right. uh, film is uh, Space is the Place, which is a film starring Sun Ra, the jazz musician. It's a very uneven film. <laughs> it's really rotten in certain parts, and it's really great in others. Uh, the great parts all have to do with Sun Ra and Sun Ra's presence, and the bad parts uh, take place in his absence. But what's holding the film together is uh, a set of questions about blackness and what it means to be black. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's no real invitation for white people into the film. Uh, it, it's, it's a film about black people that's made for black people. And Sun Ra's not mm -hmm. really trying to be universal. There are white people in the film, and some of them are villains, and some of them are not. But they're not very important. You know, the main mm -hmm. characters are all black. The The central conflict is between Sun Ra and this pimp-like guy. He, he drives a Cadillac, and, you know, he has the fancy clothes, and he's the success. Uh, that is, you know, one of the things that you could aspire to, I guess, in Oakland, where the... Uh, story is set. So it's really kind of a battle for the soul of black people between Sun Ra with his ideas about uh, music and harmony and rejection of America and of uh, the place that America gives to white people versus the opportunistic attempt to game the system and make the most of it as you can and if you're good, fine. If you screw over other people, well, that's just the way it is. That's kind of the 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 argument, but it's an argument that's very much uh, black people trying to figure out what's good for black people 
enacting for or against other black people. So it doesn't invite white people into the film. And its use of the science fiction plot of invasion uh, then becomes a, a kind of parody, right? A kind of self-parody, but also a kind of, let's say, appropriation of this otherworldliness of the genre to say, well, who are the real aliens? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> who are the who are the people who really came here on ships? <laughs> who are the people who were brought here? Who are the people who were really invaded? Who are the real victims of invasion? Uh, right. So, you know, what is this whole plot really all about? Well, historically, of course, it's about slavery. Uh, it's about uh, white, you know, appropriation of land and uh, slaughtering of uh, indigenous peoples. And that's mm-hmm. that's assumed in uh, Space is the Place. Now, in the, the third film, The Cave, uh, really, really interesting short film, not widely distributed. And I don't think Space is the Place uh, received much commercial distribution at all at the time it was written, but it has become much more widely available and kind of canonized mm-hmm. over the decades since it was made. Now, The Cave uh, is this short short film. It won a significant prize in the Toronto Film Festival in, I forget what year, 2010 or so. It's a film made by a Canadian First Nations filmmaker, challenged by this artistic uh, group that she was uh, uh, participating in to make a science fiction film. And what she did was to make a film that was based on an oral narrative that her her uncle had told her. And it starts with a recording of the uncle telling the story in the language, which is, um, I'm forgetting the name of the language. It's a, it's not a widely spoken language, let's say. <laughs> okay. It's a, it's not even one of the major indigenous American languages. It's a pretty small group of uh, speakers. So not very many people at all can understand what the, the guy is saying. What it does very, very interestingly is, is it mixes together that oral language and the content of the story, which is taken straight from that, that story that he's telling and from that culture. The uh, filmic language, the cinematic language, which is uh, the language of the imagery and of the music, uh, and which is very, very accomplished, contemporary, up-to-date cinematography. Mm-hmm. And uh, the language of the English subtitles, uh, which are necessary for a large part of the audience, uh, mm-hmm. since it's uh, it's made in Canada and uh, distributed into the United States. So th- there are political repercussions for instance in the difference between the way the uh, the indigenous narrator refers to the area where it takes place and the way that the subtitles are forced to place it in the nation state of Canada mm-hmm. uh, the film is playing these different publics you know the the Canadian public the filmic public and the indigenous public in a really interesting way against one another and mm-hmm. what what she succeeds, I think, in doing very well is without changing the content of this uh, indigenous story, which is a kind of a Rip Van Winkle story where he goes through a cave and comes into this strange land uh, where he sees native Indians who are seem to be way in the past or in some other time. And they kind of sparkle and 
there's something really weird about him. And they tell him, you don't belong here, go away. And he goes back through the, the cave that he came in and finds he has uh, long dead and uh, decayed and uh, become a skeleton. So it's kind of a Rip Van Winkle plot. I think the mixing together of the three publics and the three narrative languages uh, succeeds in doing is in bringing the question of, uh, you know, what's an invasion again? What's an alien that comes from the science fiction, which she designates it as science fiction. She mm-hmm, says, mm-hmm. This is a piece of indigenous science fiction. This is the first film of indigenous science fiction entirely in my language. You know, she mm-hmm. says it, it's what it succeeds in doing is uh, effectively redefining science fiction in the terms of this different community of practice, stretching right. the boundary, using the resources of science fiction to then reflectively, of course, uh, speak to these other communities that are looking at this and saying, oh, well, from your point of view, kind of we're science fiction, <laughs> you're reality. Right. Okay, your version of real realism and my version of realism are obviously very much at odds with one another. But those different conflicting realities are gotten at here by way of using the resources of science fiction and its particular, you know, twisted relationship with reality, skewed relationship with reality. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then you finish the book with a really potent conclusion that offers the reader who has traveled with you through your theoretical arguments and your historical arguments, a a periodization of science fiction that I think is a really strong way of pulling together the pieces of your argument. I hope that the listeners will go out and pick up the book and look at the way that you periodize science fiction using the the tools that you've presented over the course of your argument. Really beautifully done. I'm looking forward to, to hearing other, other readers' responses to this book. John, thanks again so much for your time. Uh, thank you for having me, Carl. Before you go, can you tell us what you're working on now or what we might be able to expect from you next? I don't know <laughs> what to, to say to expect from me next. Right now, actually, I, I've gotten more, I've gotten interested in a couple of things, utopia and post-humanism. Mm. Um, I taught a course on post-humanism this semester, and I'm very interested in Donna Haraway's work and her, her recent work. So environmentalism, post-humanism, uh, utopianism, kind of some kind of bundle of those interests. But still in relationship to genre and genre theory, I'm, I'm, I'm still very much interested in, when I say I, I'm interested in utopia, I'm very much interested in it, the kind of work it does as a, as a generic category. So, mm-hmm. uh, that seems to be the direction I'm, I'm working in right now. We'll keep our eyes out for that. In the meantime, I hope folks will go out and pick up science fiction and the mass culture genre system just out from Wesleyan University Press. Yeah, one last time. John, thanks for, for coming and talking about your book and your work. We, uh, we so appreciate it. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.